0: To say and couldn't put punctuation uh, at the end of it, right? Because they didn't want to break down what they had to say. Paul does this in First uh, in Ephesians chapter one, verses three through fourteen. Their hearts are just overflowing. This is a prayer of praise to God here, as Josiah just read. And imagine that uh, you have a father who has a very successful business, a very wealthy company, and he tells you that when the time is right you're going to inherit that company. How would that change your approach to work in that business? Difficult assignments might become opportunities for joy because you are the future sharer and owner in that company. Every assignment that your father might give to you, you now know is preparing you for the future promise. And each challenge is going to draw you closer to the Father and looking for His wisdom over as many years of overseeing this business who has these incredible plans for Him. And so when we think about uh, our our suffering and the fact that we are sojourners, we're between two worlds, and we're to thrive in Babylon by being people who live in the world but but are not of the world, and are being sent into the world to be salt and light, God gives us authoritative word in this letter from 1 Peter to sojourners scattered throughout uh, the Middle East, modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, so that they are deeply rooted in what their true unchanging identity is as they navigate and are salt and light to the world around them. And that's what verses 3 through 12 is taking us to. That focusing on our promised inheritance will help us work for the Lord till the end. This book, as we said, was written to sojourners. It's this mentality of people who are exiles living in Babylon, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. Uh, living in a place, that, um, in a world that is hostile to God. Uh, operating from a position that is on the margins rather than at the center of power in society but doing so with the instructions that Jesus Christ gave and doing so with the model that Jesus Christ gave as the One who was sent. The supreme missionary, Jesus Christ, sent into this world. The one sent by God, John three sixteen, says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Son is the is the is the prototype for how we are to relate in this world. And so to thrive in Babylon, you're going to see in verses three through five, there is a security that we have. Then in verses six through nine, there is a faith in that security that we must have. And then to thrive in Babylon, there is an understanding of our purpose that is rooted in ancient times, rooted in the ancient scriptures, even in the Old Testament, that God has prepared us for such a time as this. So let's look in verse three there, as was read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't pass over that little three-letter word, Our. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking to people who have been given a relationship with Jesus who have and uh, faith in what Jesus has done on the cross and His resurrection as a living hope, as the verse will continue to say, have a relationship. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Master, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Messiah, and we have, he says in verse 3, uh, this, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a livelier living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been made alive. We have been regenerated is the, is the Bible word here. Our hearts are, are, are alive. We have a new heart through God's mercy here. We've been made alive as we, as we exercise faith in what Jesus has done for us. He promised that He would send the Spirit and the Spirit would, would give us a new heart and a new covenant here. We've been made alive to a future reality. And notice he goes on to say here, this is according to His his mercy. This is a living hope. This is through Jesus' resurrection. If you know Jesus Christ, hell ended for you when hope began. And this is where hope began. When you became born again. Peter's using Jesus' words in John chapter 3 as he speaks to Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so we have been born in this world into death row. We're condemned. We are born in our sin because of our forefather Adam. And, and, and we, are, we have been born into death. And now through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, have, we are born into the home of the king of the universe. We're born into relationship. And he says this is through the resurrection, through your living hope. Now think about the guy who's writing this, Peter, right? Do you remember in John, the end of John, uh, the writer John, uh, tells the story. He talks about how Peter, after Jesus' death, he had heard that G- there, was, there was an empty tomb. And he raced to the tomb as the first guy on the scene. Now the ladies had beaten him to the punch already. But he was going to try to be the first guy there. I think Peter was a pretty competitive person there. Unfortunately John includes in his story that he lost to the younger disciple uh, that Peter lost to the younger disciple John but so John gets there first but then Peter and John uh, and the gospel of John says that he peers in and he sees this tomb that had once been sealed and guarded by strong Roman soldiers with the seal of the governor here And it is now opened, and that massive stone that no person could move had been slid to the side. The burial clothes still wound together, but no body inside them. And the head wrappings, John calls it the napkin here, has been set aside. And Peter had to be dumbfounded. And Jesus had appeared to Peter and He had forgiven him for his denial. He challenged Peter to feed his sheep, feed his lambs. He restores him. And then He commissions him to lead the early church when the Spirit comes on the scene at Pentecost. That's a living hope that He's talking about here. Peter wasn't talking about theoretical stuff here. He was talking about real life. Eyewitness stuff that he saw. He shared lunch with Jesus after his death kind of stuff. This was living hope. Living hope. And the Bible says here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 that this being born again has come to us, uh, uh, born again into a living hope has come to us because mercy. Mercy. No matter who your actual parents were, if you, when you become born again, God becomes your Father. You become new people. This is a, this is a theme that Peter's going to explore uh, in a little bit further here. There's new life. It's been, been born. It's come to birth. Because of the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah from the dead. And so being a Christian... Being, as he says in, in, in verse 1, uh, uh, strangers, <coughs> uh, sojourners, exiles, scattered abroad here. Being that means that what Jesus did for you at the resurrection, He has done for you at your very being in your core. Notice in verse 4, He not only gives us a living hope, He guarantees an eternal joy. He guarantees an eternal joy. Our security here, our security has been, has been given to us because there's a guaranteed eternal joy. Verse 4, to, inherit, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter can't explain what we have in heaven in human terms. So the only way he can explain it in our human language is to explain what it is not. He says in verse 4, it's incorruptible, so it doesn't corrupt. It's undefiled, so it's pure. And it does not fade away. We have a lot of things in this world that don't fit that description, right? Uh, I heard about uh, a little two-year-old named Leo Belknap who one day his parents, Ben and Jackie Belknap, noticed that an important envelope containing $1,060 in cash was mysteriously missing. And they had been saving money to pay back Ben's, um, the, the, the dad's parents for season tickets to the University of Utah football games. They were diehard football fans. And that was what the envelope Held. And so they started tearing apart the house, searching for this cash. They're digging through the trash, Ben said, and then Jackie hollers, I found it! And it was in the shredder. It was in the shredder. Immediately they knew that little two-year-old Leo was the culprit here. He'd been helping his mom shred junk mail and documents, and thought he was being helpful this time too when he found this envelope. And first, his mother cried, then she had to laugh. She said, as devastated and as sick as we were, this is one of those moments where you just have to laugh. And apparently, the um, there's people that have fought through these scenarios. And um and have, uh, offer solutions. So they went to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and the b- Bureau has an entire mutilated currency division, which is dedicated to redeeming burnt or rodent-chewed or deteriorated money, or in this case, shredded money by your two-year-old, as a free service to the public. It handles 30,000 claims a year, so if you know lost some significant money, here you go, here's your tip here. And it redeems more than uh, $30 million in mutilated cash. And so they contact me and said, yeah, just send it in Ziploc baggies to Washington, D.C., the Treasury, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take care of it. So Leo's not allowed to use the, the, uh, the shredder anymore. Uh, the silver lining is. That's one story you could tell at his wedding one day, right, here. But it just shows us how fragile the things that we hold dear are. A two-year-old can shred away, you know, a thousand bucks here. But notice how it describes our inheritance. He says in verse 4, incorruptible, so it's free from sources of decay, it is undefiled, so in that sense, it means it's pure, it cannot be stained, and then he says, it is reserved, uh, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. There is a beauty here. So one person said it this way, it's death proof, it's sin proof, and it's time proof. It's time proof. Now, what this means is that when you're born again, you have life and access to the family's possessions and resources. This is, you are born into your family, you are probably included in your family's will, though that's not guaranteed, is it? <laughs> But in Christ's family, you are guaranteed eternal life and access to the riches of heaven, of which the greatest riches of heaven is the blessing of God himself. Now think about how that usually works in our physical relationships here on this earth. You usually receive property that's inherited in inheritance upon the death of your father's. A death of your father. Your name's on the will, but you got to wait for it to die, right? And that's what happened in Luke 15, sadly, with the prodigal son uh, here. as He said, uh, I'm not going to wait for you to die. I'm going to take your money now and run. But look how it is with us in Christ. It's a inheritance that will come in the future, but it has already been set aside, reserved for us, prepared for our future property. And Peter's point is that if you are sojourners and exiles in this world now and you're scattered abroad, you will face suffering now. You will face uh, uh, perishable things. You will uh, face, uh, in verse 4, defiled things. You will face things that fade away here. But this inheritance can never perish or be corrupted. It will never lose its lustre or beauty. It will never be stained or filthy. That word "undefiled is used to refer to Jesus in Hebrews chapter seven. It's The end of that word undefiled" is used to uh, talk about the ideal of the purity of marriage here. In James 1.27, the purity of religion, true religion. And this inheritance will never fade will never fade away. Now notice what he says here in verse uh, 5. Who are kept, guarded, protected by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now think about our inheritance compared to what the world values, right? What the world values is the best that the world has for right now. But for the disciple of Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. I don't know if any of you have ever made things or goals of things you want to do before you die. Bucket list, so to speak. And uh, I, I've always had on my bucket list, uh, you know, I'd like to go to Israel. Uh, I would like to visit Machu Picchu uh, and Peru and some other things here. Those are, those, those are wonderful things. And they may or may not be realities in their in, in this life. But I knew a, a friend from Oregon. Her name was Stacy. And she had become a young widow uh, early on in her, in her life when her kids were young teenagers. And um, she had always had a bucket list. And one day she told me, you know what, I gave up on my bucket list. Because this life isn't the life for that. And this life isn't all there is to live for my bucket list. I'm going to cross off my bucket list in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what she told me. And I never forgot that. And uh, as she's, she's older now, she's reaching more retirement age here, and uh, she still has that mentality. She is, she's remarried, and, and her, she and I was grandkids here. But I thought, uh, uh, Stacy, uh, you have the right perspective. You have the right perspective. You're, you're living for an eternal hope, an eternal future. And so, here's the people of God here that Peter's writing to. Like Israel in the wilderness, they're, they're aliens, they're pilgrims here. They're making the way through a world that's more hostile. They're, 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 they're cast off from, from, from their earthly possessions perhaps and, and been persecuted here, but they are not cast off and separated from the inheritance that God has. They hold an absolutely sure title that no one can take away to the inheritance that God has given them. And notice what God says about that. They are not only guaranteed eternal joy here, they are guarded securely to the finish. Verse 5, They are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That word kept there, it's a military term. It's the idea of being guarded in the garrison of God's power. They are secure. Uh, In Christ, you you are preserved from the assault of what will want to tear us out of the hand of God. And he says here, through faith and God's rescuing power. Notice what he says about this inheritance. It's ready to be revealed. It's sitting, waiting for us. It's waiting for when God will pull back the veil. And so I want to ask us a question here this morning. Do our lives reflect that we are living for future hope? Are we living in worry and fear and anxiety and our own little comforts? Or are we standing on the promises as we sing? Are we rooted deep in the hope of the certainty of what our resurrected King has guaranteed for us and promises He will keep us and guard it? Are we centered in eternal things? Are we cons- or are we consumed with what will not last? What does the records of, 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 our, of, our, of our, our mental energy, our time, our money usage, uh, uh, reveal about what we're living for? And Peter says, if we're sojourners in this world, we gotta have a value shift here. We gotta build on what Jesus says is the rock, so when the storms come, the house still stands. Are we prioritizing what Jesus prioritizes? Walking with Him. Repenting of our sin. Loving Him. Building up His church, serving His passions. Growing in the Gospel in our grasp of it, like Peter is laying out here. Obeying the one another commands of Scripture. Are these the eternal things? the laying up treasure in heaven that we are living for and Jesus' glory here as our King or things that aren't going to last. If Jesus returns today and when Jesus returns, whenever that may be, What would you say right now needs to change in your life by His power to be found faithful to Him? And so we have to live in the security of our living hope. I'm not having success here with a clicker, so you could go to point one here. That would be helpful. This future hope, you might say, well, that sounds wonderful. But there's this thing called life, right? That so many times uh, uh, seems out of control. So how do you navigate life in Babylon with what you have ahead of you? And the trials that that flow in between. And the answer is that the thing that you can control by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't control what happens to you, right? But the thing that you can control by the power of the Holy Spirit, hear me on this, is faith and love for an unseen person. And so secondly, point number two is to thrive in Babylon. Your faith needs to be pure and strong during the present tests. Rejoicing. You'll find this word and praise repeated in this passage here a few times here. It's a key theme here. You see, there, there are... Three-tenths is really of salvation. Uh, We are saved in the past. when When we first trusted in Christ, we have been saved from the penalty and condemnation and guilt of sin. In this life now, after we have been saved, we are being saved. We're being sanctified, growing, set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ here. And one day, we will be fully and finally saved in the sense that we will be perfectly like Christ. That's our glorification here. And Peter refers to all three of these tenses here. He's talked about the future and that previous point here, our glorification, when we reach our inheritance. Now he's going to talk about this second phase here, our sanctification, that we are being saved. And notice here, the platform of our faith. We can trust the goldsmith during our present tests here. Look what he says in verse 6. Wherein? with this salvation and being kept in this inheritance wherein you greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be you are in heaviness through manifold temptations here what peter is saying is that in this life we can live simultaneously in grief and joy it's a strange paradox isn't it are rejoicing in what we have that doesn't change the permanent reality that we're going to build our lives in, and the circumstances of our lives, and this broken world that brings us grief. That brings grief. God allows suffering in the lives of His people. And in our circumstances, in our lives, this may not make sense to us, but if we think about it in other terms, it makes a whole lot of sense. Think about a mountain climber, for example. A mountain climber. Now, a mountain climber could save all kinds of time and energy if they got dropped off by a helicopter on the top of Mount Everest, couldn't they? All kinds of time, all kinds of hardships and energy, right? But what's their purpose? It's conquest, right? It's not efficiency. They they want to reach the goal. They want to get to the top, right? Well, what, what, what does it mean if a helicopter just drops them off there, Right? It happens. The reach of the goal happens by the testing and the deepening of their character, their discipline, and resolve. Now, um, God could create instant scientists, mathematicians, athletes, and musicians who are already arrived, born out of the womb at their peak. Right? Does He do that? No. He creates children who take on these roles over a long process. And so it is in our spiritual lives. God doesn't make us fully Christ-like in our practice the moment we're born again. He conforms us to the image of Christ degree by degree. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Being transformed into His likeness with increasing glory here. This is the doctrine, the Christian doctrine of progressive sanctification. We grow in Christ over the years here. There might be times where our growth is accelerated. might be times where our growth is slower here. But in our spiritual lives, and as in our professional lives, in your job, in your sports, your hobbies, we improve and we excel as we handle failure and learn from it here. Now, what, not, what Peter is saying is not to handle these things with a, alright, I'm self-sufficient, I got this. Actually, trials will show you the opposite is true. And that's how you grow. It is only in cultivating discipline, endurance, patience that we find satisfaction and reward in life. And many times these qualities are developed through some kind of suffering, aren't they? Now Peter says this in verse 6, You greatly rejoice, though, what? Now for a season. Now for a season. You know what this tells us? Trials have a timeline. Trials are not eternal. Aren't you glad of that? Don't you rejoice in that? Trials are not eternal. Um, it does not mean that a, a trial could not last your whole life. There are people who have chronic pain, right? And go through these things their whole life to the day they die. But it's still temporary, isn't it? It's still temporary. And so when, uh, when Peter says a little while here, he's, 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 pro- he's not promising that suffering on this earth is always going to be brief. Many times it is sometimes it is not here. What he is saying is, it is brief when it is compared, as Paul says in Romans 8 and, and 2 Corinthians, it is brief when it is compared to eternal glory. Take eternity, and now take what we're experiencing, right? And compare. It may endure for a lifetime. And we're not discounting the, trot, the, the pain, because he says heaviness here, right? But we're putting it in perspective to the broad picture of eternity because that's what he wants us to, fit, to, pick, to, to, to put our eyes on here. Now, is, is suffering something that you, you just want to do? Alright, ready to go, ready to suffer. I'm doing this willingly, right? No. Think about when you went to the hospital for a surgery, right? You had an operation. After the operation, there's pain, there's inconvenience, there's apprehension. But a person who knows what the surgery will accomplish can get through the surgery many times, right? That this experience here, some of you have had shoulder replacements, hip replacements, knee replacements, other things here to correct things here. That, that experience here, it's going to be difficult, it's going to hurt, but compared to what it will produce, it's going to be worth it, right? Right? Um, And so you you trust the surgeon here. You trust the surgeon. You have faith in the word of the surgeon. So I can go through this because there is a hope and a future. And that's the idea here. The future and hope is eternal. But also, there's a hope in the temporary because what do these trials do? Look what he says. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, it may be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This 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 trial of your faith so now we not only have a platform of our faith here, trial suffering here, but under this idea of trusting the goldsmith during our present test, we have the purpose of our Faith. When I was in Myanmar, I had to take American dollar bills and I had to go to the currency exchanger and I had to exchange them for Myanmar chet. Sometimes they would take my bills, sometimes they would not. They didn't like a little wrinkle in it because the North Koreans and Chinese were uh, flooding the market with counterfeited uh, money here. The idea here in this passage is that we take our faith and we take these trials that we're going through and we exercise trust in a God who holds us in our hands, the goldsmith. And God takes that temporary currency and He transforms it into eternal glory. He lays, We lay up treasure in heaven. He says in verse 7, the trial of your faith, there's a genuineness here. It's, it, it, our, our faith is much more precious than a, than a gold in this world that perishes. But like that gold, he says, as the goldsmith would heat up that gold and turn it to liquid and the impurities would rise to the top and they would scoop out the impurities so that what was left, they would be able to see their face, see their image in that gold there. That gold that though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ reveals Himself in all His glory. And you think about gold and fire, Does fire reduce that gold to ashes? It doesn't. But what does it do to the gold? It removes the impurities that would burn up, right? And what Peter is saying is that a faith that can't be tested, you really can't be trusted, right? It's through trials and testings that show the genuineness of our faith, is what Peter is saying. And when we are going through things, we might always have this question in the back of our minds. Why does this have to happen? I don't see any good coming from this. Right? Remember what Romans 8.28 says? It doesn't say that we see all the things that will be good from this. Working together for good. It says, and we know. We know it. There's a trust. There's a trust. Because what will come out of that is far greater than than the suffering that we experienced. But sometimes we're like the eight-year-old boy who's playing with a toy truck and then it breaks. And he is just inconsolable, right? And he cries out to his parents to fix it. And imagine as he's crying out to his parents to fix it, his father says uh, says to him, a distant relative that you haven't met yet has just died and he's left you $100 million. What will that child's reaction be? That will mean nothing, Right? He's just going to cry louder, right? Until this little truck's fixed. He doesn't have the capacity at that point to realize his condition and be consoled. And and folks, Peter doesn't want us to be like that little boy. He wants to understand what the hundred million dollars is in comparison to the broken truck. And when we when we uh, uh, um, understand, that's why Paul prays that God gives the Christians that. In uh, and, and Ephesians 3, the ability to grasp the height, the depth, the breadth, and length of the love that God has given us in Christ. Right? Because what happens when you're in the furnace is that there's pride that's stripped away. There's self-righteousness in comparing other people that's stripped away. There's a, a self-dependence that's stripped away. By the way, self-dependence is an illusion. Right? It doesn't take very much to reveal how little we can trust ourselves and our abilities. There's selfishness and our comforts that are stripped away to reveal the character of Christ in us. And so this idea of faith here, the trial of your faith here, it means that when the trial comes... You are surrendering all to God and you're obeying His Word in spite of the circumstances and consequences. And God is putting you on a platform to be able to say, look at my son, look at my daughter, like He did with Job, as this heat comes, as the crucible comes. When they are tried, they shall come forth as gold. And notice what Peter says. A trial of your faith uh, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love. And whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Notice the person of your faith. The person of your faith. You may not You might not be able to rejoice over your circumstances, but you can rejoice in them by rejoicing in Jesus Christ. We could have all kinds of testimonies this morning from many of you who have walked many years with the Lord or some who have just walked a few years with the Lord or recently uh, recently with the Lord who will be able to tell us that their experience of their trial helped them learn something new and wonderful about Jesus Christ. Spurgeon used to say, little faith will take your soul to heaven but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. It's not enough that we long for heaven during times of suffering. And we should. But everybody longs for heaven in times of suffering, right? And that is a good thing here. But what Peter is telling them is in your suffering, be a good steward of it. Exercise love and faith and rejoicing so that you experience some of the glory of heaven in the midst of your suffering now. And these were people who were being persecuted. By unbelievers. Because believers who suffer, we are not destroyed by God. We are not dashed to the ground by our troubles. The believers who, who suffer here, we, we love Jesus Christ and we are to rejoice in Him even though we've never seen Him and don't see Him now. Because our lives are characterized by a hope that fills us in the presence, In the present with love and joy. Now, had Peter seen Jesus? Peter's eyes had seen Him. He loved Him. He loved Jesus, but he's writing to people who had not and when Jesus Christ is revealed, the gold of our faith will shine to His praise. We'll glorify our Father who is in heaven. Um, the Huguenots, which were um, uh, Protestants who were persecuted by the Roman church in France in the 1600s. Uh, the, Louis XIV passed a law that made public worship for the Protestants a crime. And men who were caught at secret worship services in the fields were sent to the the, the ship's galleys, the galleys, to row. They would be chained to a rowing bench. And they would slave at those oars until they died. If you go to one of the museums in France today, there's a replica of one of the great long galley oars that's hanging up in the museum. And underneath is is a picture, a model here of the galley and below it are inscribed these words. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. They were able to go through that persecution because they understood that nothing would separate them from Christ's love. And that's how you work through trials. So trust the goldsmith during your present test. You also notice the point of your faith. Verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the goal of your faith. The goal of your faith. And here He reverts us back to a future outlook, our future salvation. Final glorification. And then thirdly, verses 10-12, through of which salvation the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come to you searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. To whom it was revealed that not to themselves, the prophets, but to us they did minister the things which are now reported to you by them which have preached the Gospel to you with the Holy Ghost, think of Pentecost, sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into." So thirdly here, understand our purpose from ancient times. Writing to these believers, shaken, tossed, battered, he says, God's eternal purpose is here, and it's rooted even in the ancient scriptures in the Old Testament. There there is a purpose to thrive in Babylon. We need to understand the ancient scriptures that God has had a plan from the beginning. We've been saved from the penalty and condemnation of sin and its guilt. We first trusted our Savior here. And and God has had a plan that, that has been predicted by the prophets that the prophets have inquired and searched carefully for. So it's a plan that's been predicted. Verse 10. They prophesied of the grace that would come what? To you. To you. There is also a precision to this. They searched what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them as they're writing these prophecies was indicating when He testified before in the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. So as they are writing the Scriptures inspired by God, they are searching for something that has been covered like minors, a mystery. And this tells us a little bit about the Word of God, doesn't it? And the authors that God used. They weren't passively just writing like robots, were they? But they were deeply interested. And they were moved by the passages, passages they were inspired to write. They're inquiring. They're into it. They're questioning. They're investigating as they write here. And just as they spoke of Jesus' sufferings hundred years before they happened, what Peter's saying, they're also speaking of our sufferings. Because we're joined to Jesus. And so when we read the Scriptures and we see the things that referring to Christ because we're joined to Christ, we're joined in that experience as well. They predicted. There was a precision here in this purpose. And they also needed to understand that they had a privilege. There was a privilege. Notice verse 12. To whom it was revealed, them, them it was revealed, that not to themselves, as the writer's, But to us, they'd administer the things which are now reported to you by them that have preached the gospel to you. To us, unto us, the blessings the prophets have foreseen uh, here had had reached. Peter says to you who are scattered in exiles, had reached them personally, and then, as extension to us, it's reached us. It's arrived. And Peter's point here is that believers in Christ, are we are incredibly blessed to live in this time in the New Covenant. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 13, uh, as He spoke to uh, the disciples, as, as He's ministering amongst them. He says, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men have longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And they hear what you hear, but did not hear it. It was fascinating to the prophets. What we have is privilege in God's new covenant. But not only the prophets, who else? It also stirred interest, intense interest of the angels. The angels here desire to look into. That word desire means a strong interest, a craving. It's, it's a present continuing, meaning, meaning they're yearning to comprehend more of the mystery of salvation in the church. And, and the desire to look into that word, look into, means to, to bend forward. To look forward into more closely, to peer into. It's used in the Gospels of the individuals as they peer into the empty tomb in Luke and John. It's used in James to refer to one who peers into a mirror here. And so what, is this, what, it, what this is saying is that God. this is so amazing what God has done in salvation for us. And how He's forming a church, an assembly, that He's educating angels about His wisdom and grace for the salvation of the church. This isn't something that's new to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says, We've been made a spectacle to the world, both the angels and the men. Ephesians 3.8 says, says Paul says, I'm blessed least of all saints, and I've given this grace, so I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, make all men see this, this, this dispensation of the mystery that's been hidden in God from the beginning, but now it's been made known. He says in Ephesians 3.10, he says, to the intent that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplish in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, angels haven't experienced redemption. And so they can't understand fully the experience of it like redeemed humankind can. When we trusted Christ, we were born for glory. God's glory. We're being kept for glory. And as we obey Him and trust Him in an experience of our trials, we're being more and more prepared for glory. And when we love Him, and trust Him and rejoice in Him, we can also experience the glory right now. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. I wonder this morning if you could say that there's a time in your life where you are have been made a, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have exercised faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you as the only hope for your eternal relationship with God and eternal life. That what Jesus did on the cross is He died for the uh, uh, corruption of your sins as the perfect sacrificial lamb. And as He was uh, raised again uh, uh, to, to, to uh, live in victory over that here, that you trust, you're trusting in Christ alone. And if that's not you this morning, then today is the day of salvation. And I wonder if today you would indicate that uh, to me after the service or any time uh, that I'd, I'd love to, to, to put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ and turn from my own way to Jesus through what He's done for me. And please have that conversation with me. Here we have many people who can direct you to, we can show you from the Scriptures more of what Jesus has accomplished for you. And then believers here this morning, what are we living for? If this is true, and it is, and since it is, how does that change the way we live? How does that change our hopes? How does that change our time? How does that change our wallets? How does that change our relationships? Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the joy unspeakable, unable to be even uttered, Thank You for that eternal weight of glory. And Lord, help us as we are in this process here of becoming more and more like Your Son. I pray this morning if there is a heart here that doesn't know You, that You would prod and convict and, and uh, You would uh, use Your Gospel and Your Word here to um, uh, bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And today would be the day of salvation. Lord, without this hope, life, this life right now is the best that we'll experience. And after that comes hell. Eternal destruction. Lord, with You, this life will pale in comparison to what will be revealed. Help us to live for those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.